Welcome to the Outside Right podcast. Welcome to the Football Travel Podcast from Outside Right. I'm editor Chris Lee and coming up in this episode. If you ever plan on moving to Russia, attach yourself to a club and you will have a family for life. It is, it's, a, it's a lovely atmosphere to watch football in. We get the lowdown on the Russian domestic scene from Siberia-based writer Andrew Flint. You can basically correlate them inversely. So whenever the world is in danger of something like nuclear war, Leeds United tend to be not doing very well. And we discuss Leeds United with football journalist John McKenzie. Enjoy. The Outside Right podcast. I'm joined by the Siberia-based football writer, Andrew Flint. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks very much for having me on, Chris. Looking forward to this. An absolute pleasure to have you on. And it's a really fascinating topic that we've actually been asked to cover with what, just over a year to go to the World Cup in Russia um, at the time of recording. So briefly, just um, introduce yourself then and how come you ended up living in Siberia? Well, I actually came out to Russia as an English teacher, basically because I was looking for a job, couldn't find one in London, Mm -hmm. and I looked on an English teaching website. I saw Siberia and I thought, well, I know nothing about it, so, you know, why not? Um, That was seven and a half years ago, and the... The lifestyle of being an English teacher abroad, I started to grow weary of, and I just the chance encounter of a local football club meant I started writing, and that was about three years ago. And so now I've moved into uh, moved into writing full time, and I have managed to watch a lot of football at all levels in Russia, in Moscow, in even in Sochi, the Russian Cup final. Some people may have may have seen in the news there were four red cards a massive fight and at the end of the game and I was I was there um and I've just grown really attached to to Russia to Tumen my city in Siberia uh, the local football team Oral Yekaterinburg which will play in the easternmost world cup venue so yeah that's how I came here and mm-hmm. that's what I'm up to at the moment brilliant and I um, guess people that are listening will know teams like Spartak and Zenit St Petersburg and people like that um what else? What do we need to know about the Russian domestic scene? Who are the top teams? When's the season run? Political affiliations, all that sort of thing. Well, it won't surprise most people to know that the governance of Russian football is is a mess. Um, there's there is a lot of corruption, and that's one of the strange things I found about this place. That everybody is so open and aware of the fact that there are. There, there are corrupt goings on, but nothing is ever really done about it. Um, I mean, for example, they have a phrase here um, in Russian football called Dogovorny match, which literally translates as friendly match, but it's it's basically a type of friendly match fixing. And it, it goes on all the time. Um, it basically means instead of fixing it for money, what teams do is if one team desperately needs a result at the end of the season, they say to their opponents, look, you give us this result and we'll give you a result next season when you need it. Um, and this actually happened for my local, well, my local Premier League side, Ural Yekaterinburg, um, two seasons ago. And they got the result that kept them up on goal difference. So it really was very, very clear. The betting patterns went through the roof. Anyhow, that's a that's a negative note to start on. But um, Spartak Moscow, they they're the people's team. Um, they're the most historic side, and they've just won their first title in 16 years under Massimo Carrera, who was Antonio Conte's assistant at Juventus. Uh, they started the season being knocked out of Europe by a um, Cypriot team, um, and that was fairly shocking. They sacked their manager. Carrera was 
moved up to full-time manager and they've been fantastic all season. And the interesting clubs I'd say to keep your eyes on, FC Krasnodar in mm. the south of Russia, they are owned by an independent businessman, an ol- well, a non-oil oligarch, um, Sergei Galitsky. And they've got this fascinating setup where they've, they've established a whole network, a satellite of academies all over their region. And that was, they've only, they've only been a club for eight years, nine years, sorry. Um, and they qualified for the Europa League again. So that's their fourth season in a row they'll be in, in Europe. And other than that, uh, Rostov, they've risen to prominence recently, playing Manchester United, beating Bayern Munich in the Champions League. And they're a fantastically well-organised side. And I suppose, just very briefly, I would mention as well, Ruben Kazan. People who've watched Champions League for 10, 15 years might remember Ruben Kazan beating Barcelona in Barcelona, in the Nou Camp. Mm. Their manager, Kurban Berdeev, is very strongly rumoured to be returning to Kazan, where he spent nine years, won two titles. And so that could be an interesting, interesting uh, team to watch over the next few years. Uh, and the bottom end of the table is anybody's guess. It's a, it's a free for all down there. <laughs> so hard to judge, but it has been a very tight league table apart from Spartak at the top. Um, European places, relegation, all decided on the last day. So mm. definitely worth a visit the the Russian league system. And when's it when's it run? Summer, is it? Yeah, it's 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 actually not a summer league anymore. It changed to mirror the European league system okay. in 2011-2012. So that was the well third season that I spent. <laughs> I'm, I'm categorising my time in Russia by seasons, not calendar years here. Um, my third season here. They moved it ostensibly to help Russian teams in Europe, and it's shown to be an utterly futile exercise. Because of the winter in Russia, there's an automatic, unmovable three-month winter break. And that is now in the middle of the season, when before it was the the end of season. So, yeah, it runs from, uh, pardon me, late July. So it does start a bit early, late July till uh, middle of May. Um, So we've literally just finished the season now. Um, There's one more playoff game to come on Saturday, relegation promotion playoff. But then Mm. domestic matters will be done. Um, so yeah, so in line with European leagues is how Russian okay. league runs. And how easy is it for a foreign visitor to ground hop in Russia, especially the World Cup in mind? I remember when I, I've been to Russia twice, but with work, so it's a different kind of visa. But even for a tourist visa, you have to send off and uh, and your passport, don't you, and wait for it to come back? Well, yeah, the visa situation for me personally has been a very touchy issue for the last three years. I have actually two days ago just had my residency confirmed as a married father of two who's lived here for seven and a half years you'd imagine it would be easy it took me nearly two and a half years to get my residency um so visas for the world cup they are going to make it much easier for fans to get visas if you have any max tickets for the world cup that that effectively is your paperwork they will accept that and I think it allows you to stay for around 21 days around the match. So it will give you time and ability to to move. One thing that usually happens is if you stay for more than seven days in one place, you have to register in that city um, via the hotel you're staying in. But 
if you're moving around ground hopping on any level that won't won't be an issue for the world cup um the main problem of course is the distance and travel links almost all run through moscow and you can get very cheap flights um within the country so for example i live three hours flight from moscow and i can get there if i plan in advance for you know around 40 quid 30 40 quid the old easy jet prices that we used to have in in europe um so and between st petersburg and moscow there's a new high speed rail link so that will help matters a lot uh, and actually if you look on the map there are relative clusters of world cup venues you've got the southern cluster you've got the central cluster um and Yekaterinburg, where i will be going to is is that's the one that's furthest out of the way but um trains are very efficient they run on time uh, they're not the quickest but they are they they run on time they're, if they're relatively comfortable there are cheap options mid-range and expensive options but flights are the best option and there are plenty of those so if you don't mind a bit of extra time traveling it's perfectly possible mm. what's the mood ahead of the uh, of the world cup in the media and the way fans seem to be receiving on social media and their comments and reactions there's been an undercurrent for a long long time in russia of a perceived western anti-russian bias and i initially thought well I need to find out how how true this is. And I actually blame both sets of media. Um, so by that, I mean the Russian media tends to almost show a blind eye to any perceived goings on and and just say, oh, well, this is just the West building up a picture of, um, of resentment and inaccurately reporting things. Mm. However, I do also think the Western media is to blame for picking up one or two examples and extrapolating that to represent the whole country. Take the BBC documentary, for example, Chris, you know, the, the one about Russian hooligans, the yes, BBC, um, that one, that was, I, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry when I, when I watched that, they, the, I mean, I'm sure we'll come on to this in a moment, but the, the issue of violence at football and security at football the truth, honestly, is, and I've been to plenty of games. I went to the Moscow Derby three weeks ago, for example, and I've been to games where different ethnic groups have played each other. So, Angie Mahachkala from Dagestan. I've been to Tesca Moscow against Angie, and there's a lot of cultural clashes there. You, you, you don't have the opportunity anywhere near the stadium or in cities to actually um, encounter widespread violence like we saw in France that was horrific and unfortunately I don't mean to criticize the French security forces too much but they just simply weren't prepared for it and it just the fans ran riot um thugs hooligans whatever brand of violence you want to call it or you know any level it was they wasn't they weren't controlled in Russia the police presence is significant and it has been stepped up recently um and you know, so it's, you know the mood. You asked about the mood ahead of the World Cup around the media mood, the media cold war, if you like. That's the main sticking point. Um, if I'm honest, there isn't an absolute fever pitch mood about football itself as a sport. Russia isn't focused entirely on football. Ice hockey is, if I'm honest, the number one sport. Uh, of course, every country in the world will say if they're hosting a major tournament. 
football is our number one sport because they have to sell the World Cup, right? Um, it, it's not quite true for Russia, except in the big cities, of course, there is a lot of following, you know, the Moscow clubs and St. Petersburg. Um, but, yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of people are actually very aware of the problems. The stadium construction, for example. Um, I don't know if you've seen, but the Krestovsky Stadium in St. Petersburg, that will host the final of the Confederations Cup. And in three weeks' time, I think it will host one of the, oh no, the opening game against New Zealand. And they they triumphantly announced that Zanitz would play a league game there in April, and they did. But uh, they straight away moved back to the Petrovsky Stadium, their old stadium, because the grass was just horrific. It cut up and they've taken the pitch out. They've relayed it again um, two days ago. So that won't probably bed in very well in time for the Confederations Cup. And people are frustrated by that, too. So uh, it's not an overly positive mood, if I'm honest. Um, Russia's chances on the pitch, well, realistically, Russian fans have been disenchanted for a long time with the national team and nobody is really expecting them to go very far. So, you know, in contrast to how it would be if England hosted the World Cup, of course, we'd have the madness, everybody predicting England would win the World Cup and Mm. should at least get this far. There isn't that expectation in Russia. And I'm sure they will criticise if they don't do well, but nobody's expecting a great deal, which actually I think, ironically, is a good thing. No, fair enough. And just going back there, should we deal with that elephant in the room, which is hooliganism? I've been kind of at length to explain after Euro 2016 the difference between a kind of a yob, you know, a rowdy, obnoxious uh, England fan in Marseille, for example, and a hooligan um, as in the modern sense, the you know, the organised, trained, ultra-type firms like in Russia where they would do their sort of close combat training where... Um, black t-shirts with various political slogans on them. I mean, how, you kind of touched on it there. I mean, is it you, you don't think it's going to impact the World Cup? You think it's going to be? Do you think it's going to be trouble free, or are we actually going to see pockets of trouble? Well, I, I, this is not. I, I swear to God, this is not me trying to be biased towards my 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 country where I live. But it will not affect fans remotely in the same way that that the violence we saw in France last summer, simply because, well, for two reasons. Firstly, like I mentioned, the security is is already a very strong factor in in Russian football in general. I go to watch uh, games in front of, say, 1,000, 2,000 people in the second tier in my local club, and they have every game, no matter who they're playing against, they have at least 30, 40 police, uh, armed police at the ground. And Dynamo Moscow visited recently. They were relegated at the end of last season for financial problems. And they brought they brought about 200 away fans, which is a, an incredible away support at this level. And they were very well prepared. They, they cordoned off the approach to the stadium and had extra armed police. They had a water cannon standing by. This is in the second tier. Um, the Russian... Uh, the Russian big Russian derby, the Moscow derby, CSKA against Spartak that I went to a few weeks ago, I came out of the Metro three hours before the game Mm. and three hours before the game, about a kilometre from the stadium because the new CSKA Moscow stadium Metro stops not been opened yet. And there were, I counted, there were 35 armed police who straight away said to every person, CSKA, Ili, Spartak, Spartak, Naliyeva, Siska and Naprava, 
and they directed you in different streets three hours before the game. I mean, it was, I was very, very impressed. It, it might, some people might feel uncomfortable with such a show of force of armed police, but it's, I think it's by far the best way to do it because it rules out any possibility near stadiums. So for the World Cup itself, people, unless they go looking for trouble, they just aren't going to find it. In, in, you know, I'm talking even on the streets. You walk down the streets and I've been asked peacefully, but I've been asked for my documents on the streets and people will be asked for that. So if you're a fan and you're clearly, clearly fine, you'll be asked to show your fan ID, which you need to have um, to to have access to stadiums. Uh, so that's the that's one thing police presence and it has been stepped up recently police presence and security is so well drilled it, it really will be very difficult if people are looking for violence but secondly also the nature of the fans the organized ultras you mentioned there chris about the difference between a yob um you know rowdy obnoxious yob and a hooligan the, the russian hooligan firms in that BBC documentary, they try to paint a picture that they rule Russian fandom. I, I, I've never seen them in seven and a half years. And it's, it's not because they are not there. It's because mm. they, they go looking for organised fights. And it's, this is not something that is a football-centric thing. This is a, a thing that's grown out of society in the last hundred years in Russia. There's a pursuit, if you would want to call it, called wall-to-wall fighting, where... People will arrange to meet. They'll have a specific number of people on each side. They will have rules about what they're allowed to fight with. So usually it's no weapons, just um, just your your body, your hands, your fists. They meet in a forest way outside the jurisdiction of the city police, partly so they don't get stopped, and also because they don't want any anything messing it around. And it is a it's a macho show of strength, but it is they they're not interested in involving unsuspecting members of the public they just simply want to fight each other in the forest and this has been going on for decades and decades in russia mm. um and this is what the ultra groups have linked themselves to so um if you really go out of your way sure you will find violence but no more than in any other any other country but i'd actually argue less so because the security presence is so much tighter so quite refreshing um, to hear that so it's fingers crossed that um that it all goes off peacefully next year. And I've heard a rumour that the transport's going to be free during the World Cup. Is that right? Well, yeah, one of my one of my good contacts in Moscow, is, um, he runs a CSK Moscow fans group. He, he told me two weeks ago that the Metro will be free. It's already very cheap. It's um, for a day ticket, it's less than a pound. And for a week ticket, it's something like four pounds. So I don't think many fans would be that concerned about that price, but it will be apparently be free during the World Cup. And considering the scale of the network and where you can get to on it, it's um, I think it's a fantastic gesture and it will definitely make life a lot easier for people who don't have to buy a ticket in Russian who might not speak Russian very well. So that's definitely going to be a plus for the fans getting around the capital. Mm, I was going to say, when I was on the Russian underground, absolutely stunning in Moscow, uh, the underground, but uh, I couldn't understand it. It wasn't in English. <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely, the Moscow underground in itself, I would say, is a tourist attraction. It's just the mosaics and the the Soviet-era design is, is absolutely breathtaking. Um, so that alone will be worth a fair few picture opportunities and the busking down there is fantastic too um, so keep an eye out for 
the, the Moscow Underground itself. I, I came here trying to find my local football club. And for two years, I know it's going to sound ridiculous, but partly because my Russian is bad, I couldn't actually find the temporary stadium where the local club were playing. Eventually, after two years, I found the, found the ground. And it was the most welcoming atmosphere from the fans and from the club as a foreigner I've ever experienced. You know, I've lived in South America, in Italy, in Spain for various lengths of time. Never felt welcome quite like here. And I'd say my favourite anecdote was when I got into writing. I bought my season ticket three years ago and went to the ticket office and the lady just didn't understand me, um, my bad Russian and her bad English. So the marketing manager came downstairs, Anton, who spoke good English, and he said, come up to my office, we'll sort out your season ticket here. So I sat there looking out onto the pitch, watching the first team train, and I knew all the players because I'm a bit obsessive when I follow a club, I have to know everything. And I said, well, I don't know, Vladimir Kuleshov looks a bit bit dodgy recently, I don't think he should play the next game. And he said, what, you, you actually know the players? You actually understand what's going on? None of the Russian fans do. Do you want to write about the club? And he said, look, this will be a big thing for the club to have a foreign journalist. And then I thought, well, that's getting ahead of yourself. I'm not really a journalist yet. but um, And purely because of that, I have a new career. And they've given me press passes. They've welcomed me in. They've helped me get interviews. And I just feel part of a club like I never quite have before. So it's if you ever plan on moving to Russia... Attach yourself to a club and you will have a family for life. It is, it's, a, it's a lovely atmosphere to watch football in. Mm, that's a, a lovely way to finish then um, on a high. So um, just finally then, where can people connect with you online? Well, I'm, I'm on Twitter at Andrew M.I.J. Flint. And that's where I interact the most. And I'm, I do a lot of my reporting on Facebook. I do a lot of video reporting on matches. So I have a YouTube channel. Um, under Andrew Flint uh, but I do most of my reporting for RussianFootballNews.com and FootballGrad F-U-T-B-O-L Grad FootballGrad.com uh, and I'm a senior writer at These Football Times where I've written f- full-length feature articles on Russian football and other areas too so head to those websites for my written work and um, check out my YouTube channel for videos from Russian football too Brilliant. I think uh, everyone definitely have a benefit by having a good look at that. So, um, Adri Spasiba, thank you very much for your time. The Outside Right podcast. So I am joined by freelance journalist John McKenzie, who's here to talk about Leeds United. Welcome, John. Hello. How are you doing? Great. Thanks very much for joining us. So what is your connection with Leeds United and, and what kind of journalism are you doing at the minute? So at the moment I'm doing mainly freelance stuff, sort of trying to get a bigger profile. Um, but I am doing some work. I write for the Economist Sports Blog, which is uh, part of their website. It doesn't come out in the in the print journal uh, edition, but it, it does have a website. I also work for the Square Ball, which is a, an independent fanzine for Leeds United, um, started in 1989. So it's got a fairly good pedigree. Uh, and it's won many awards for being one of the best uh, fanzine that you'll get. Um, and then I also do a little bit of uh, crossword setting. So I've done some football crossword setting for the Blizzard magazine, uh, which is great fun. Brilliant. And um, we're here to talk about Leeds United, which is often referred to as 
a sleeping giant, you know, massive stadium, huge catchment area, and fleeting periods of greatness. I mean, how would you describe Leeds United to the uninitiated, especially those of our overseas listeners? Well, I don't know if you've heard of the doomsday clock, um, but recently some kid on Reddit um, drew up this graphic which showed a correlation between the positions of Leeds United mm. in the in the league compared to the severity of the uh, of the uh, doomsday clock, which basically attempts to show how close we are to some kind of human-induced global catastrophe. Mm. Um, and you can basically correlate them inversely. So whenever the world is in danger of something like nuclear war, Leeds United tend to be not doing very well. Uh, and as soon as there's a, a sort of period of global boom, Leeds United do well. So we we, we started in uh, 1919 um, and we had a sort of dip in the 40s when you had the, the world war we had a bit of a dip in the late 50s when um, there was obviously all kinds of nuclear uh, machinations going on and then we had a dip in the 80s which was when uh, when the cold war was really uh, came to a head so we, yeah we've had ups and downs we have had some really brilliant uh, periods uh, particularly the don revy era is as remembered by by many people. Don Revy took us to a couple of first division titles, um, an FA Cup and League Cup and a few Intercities Fairs Cups. Um, and that was really our, our golden age. After that, it sort of, it, it kind of went here, there and everywhere. We did have a European Cup final, but we lost to Bayern Munich in 75. Uh, and there was obviously a lot of controversy involved in that. Um, we had a stint with Brian Clough, which people know about with respect to the Damage United. Is it 44 days? 44 days, yeah. And 44 days is actually also this, uh, the length of the stint that Jock Stein or Steen had at Leeds United as well before he went off to Scotland. That's a, a, another uh, fact about Leeds that a lot of people don't actually know. But I, I don't know if anyone's going to make another film based on that. But less controversial, Jock Stein, than, um, than Brian Clough. Um but then obviously we get to the sort of last few decades and uh, we famously reached a semi-final uh, in the Champions League in 2001. Um, and I mean, I could talk more about that, but I think we're going to move on to talk about uh, that in a little bit more detail later on. Uh, but yeah, with Leeds, you have, as you say, a huge catchment area. Uh, you have a, a city which is in the top five in, in the, the UK for population, uh, but only one football team. It's in the north so you obviously have that uh, area that traditionally was filled with more football teams you have it in yorkshire so there's the yorkshire rivalries that you get with clubs like huddersfield which is just down the road bradford which is even closer um the, the sheffield clubs uh, barnsley etc etc you can you can list them all so it it really benefited from being in a geographical area that was there was a lot of density with club with respect to clubs uh, and also being in a big city so it had that that element to it as well but the big um, rivalry is manchester united if i'm not mistaken um how has that come about is just a, is that a, a lancashire yorkshire thing or, or is it because you often find yourself going head to head with them like with the 1992 championship was it 91 it was yeah 90, 91 92 um was there was the the year when we won the the last first division i guess it was before the first division became the premier league and yeah i think it's the the lancashire yorkshire rivalry features there i think as well the fact that leeds because they had such a, a pedigree in the 70s and then obviously united have that uh, pedigree again in the sort of late 90s early 2000s well the whole of the 2000s and onwards there was always considered to be uh, rivals in that sense and i mean leeds fans to this day still consider it um 
consider everyone to be their to be their enemies. There, there was a sort of dirty Leeds um, mantra. Obviously, went through the seventies mm. when certain players were a little bit more um, a little bit more physical, shall we say, than than was expected. And we also had controversy as well in the in the early two thousands with some of our players um, in nightclubs as well, which is an image that I don't really like to to talk no. about. But is there? I was going to say, you must admit, I mean, Leeds is a divisive club isn't it in terms of if you ask other fans yeah i think so it's because we are considered to be a sleeping giant when actually when you look at the history there are there are um tournaments one and divisions one but it's particularly in the 1670s and they didn't win anywhere near as much as they probably should so i think a lot a lot of clubs consider Leeds to have ideas above their station so almost seeing them as uh, i guess uh, a sort of proto liverpool as liverpool became later on this idea that they were a great club that had just been unlucky for years and years i think there's a sort of clash between how well leeds fans consider their team to have done in those periods and how uh, other fans i think uh, don't and and also yeah being in yorkshire and being the yorkshire club who really did did the best having that proliferation of clubs around them i think probably played into that yeah, and it's important for English football to have Yorkshire teams doing well. Um, but the how come it's found itself? It was pushing for promotion in the second division, um, second tier of English football, the Championship, just to confuse everyone. Um, or even the hang on, what is it now? The EFL Championship. I'm not quite That's sure what it's called, but it's the second tier of English football, and you just finished a few points outside of the uh, promotion playoffs. Um, how did it find itself in that position with such a huge fan base? Yeah. So the end of the nineties. We had uh, a period when we were doing quite well. Like I said, 2001, we got to the semi-final of the Champions League. We got, we did okay. We got into Champions Leagues before that. We did okay in the UEFA Cup uh, before that. Uh, and in the early 2000s, then Peter Ridsdale, who was the chairman at the time, took out a number of huge loans against the prospect of our uh, share in TV rights and sponsorship revenues from the Champions League. Uh, but then in the following two years, we failed to qualify for the Champions League. And so it meant that we had a huge uh, outlay and, and we had no way of paying debts back. And that was the sort of beginning of the end for us. So it meant that Rio Ferdinand was sold for £30 million to Manchester United, um, which meant that O'Leary was upset. He left. And then obviously there was a sort of uh, a little, little bit of a rollerball effect there and more players left. Managers struggled. The team did worse. Um, as a result, and they were relegated in 2003-04. And it meant that we then basically had a cut price sale of everything. A lot of the players went very cheap. We ended up selling the stadium and the training ground, both of which we still don't own. Um, And eventually it culminated with being bought by Ken Bates around that period. And that period went really bad, and we ended up actually being relegated 2006-07 into League One. And yeah, we've just never really been able to get back after that. And I think what, what's really interesting about Leeds United is the fact that you almost get, they're almost a bit of an anachronism. You you have a club who was, I mean, there were the British representatives in the Champions League in 2001. They were, they were really at the top of what was expected. They finished with David O'Leary. I think we finished every season in the top five. But then because of this financial, all these financial problems, we we just we dropped, and so what happened was there's a sort of stasis, it's a historical stasis. So you go to Elland Road, you watch Leeds United play, and it feels like you're going back in time almost because, I mean, 2001 was just before uh, Abramovich buys Chelsea, mm. before this big boom, this capitalist boom that that has hit the Premier League and has gone on from strength to strength since then. And Leeds United definitely has has the feel of a, a, a club that 
was big once, but has none of those sorts of trappings or fripperies that you get with Premier League clubs now. So I find, I mean, being a Leeds United supporter, very interesting from that respect, because you, you, you're supporting a club which has almost frozen in time. Um, now, we've, we've managed to drag ourselves back, as it were. We, we got promoted 2009-10. Uh, automatic promotion we finished in second place just about we we scraped through that season and then since then we basically were um, finishing around 15th in the championship and just went from bad owner to bad owner really we had Ken Bates and we had uh, more famously Massimo Cellino there's been other owners in there as well but um, there are rumblings that that our, our new owner whether or not he is the the full owner yet we don't know but obviously Massimo Cellino has all of these uh, legal reasons why he can't be involved in the running of the club at the moment but Andrea Radrizzani is now uh, technically in control of the club because uh, Cellino isn't allowed to involve himself in the running of the club at the moment um, but we brought in Gary Monk at the beginning of last season and we've had a for what is for Leeds United, what is a very impressive season? We've we've done a lot with not a lot, um, and we were unlucky to miss out on playoffs. Um, and you say we missed out by a few points in the end, but we we'd been in the playoff places for most of the season. After about ten games in, we were we were barely out out of that. I don't even think we were until right at the end of the season. So it's it's a funny old place for a Leeds United fan at the moment. It's hard to know whether or not we're making progress or whether or not this is just a a bit of a flash in the pan season and. Um, when you when you support Leeds, the majority of your life being sort of let down by by owners and uh, board members, etc. You when something like this happens, you should be something usually the club would celebrate. With the first time we finished so high in the league for years, we barely spent any money. We've had players playing well, the team have have got together, and yet there's uncertainty about Gary Monk's future, whether or not he'll be signed up, which which of the players we've got on loan are going to stay. So next season is sort of very much up in the air, depending on what happens over the summer. And I've been to Ellen Road, uh, it's just the once actually, but that was a kind of mid-table game in the championship. And even and it wasn't even half full, but I could tell there was a, if it was full, it'd be absolutely pumping. What are your uh, tips to people who want to visit Ellen Road? I mean, I would encourage people to go to Ellen Road. I think, you know, I've taken a lot of friends there who are big football fans and the experience of going to watch Leeds at Ellen Road is well worth it, precisely because, as I was saying before, you sort of have this club in stasis and you, you going to watch a Leeds game is like going to watch a game in the, the 80s and 90s. It's the same stadium. Nothing's really changed. We built a big stand, but the, the majority of people who are, who are uh, going to be more lively uh, sit in, in the cop end or the, uh, the south stand. So I would recommend go go and watch Leeds United, particularly this season, because uh, if if it does turn out that Leeds end up finding their way back into the Premier League, no doubt these things will change and it'll be hard to get along. I would recommend that you do sit in the cop as well if you do go, because the atmosphere there is great. Um, and it d- does tend to get quite full there. Although be aware that if you sit in the cop, there are um, columns right at the back. So if you sit towards the back of the cop you'll you will have restricted seating there not that anyone sits through the game but no. uh, tickets are fairly easy to get hold of uh, through the website you do need to sign up for a membership but that's fairly common these days getting tickets to games in the in the english leagues um, it's very easy to get to by road um, it's in the Beeston area, so there's plenty of road ask- access. It's not, it's, it's a little bit out of the the city centre, but it's close enough that if you do go by train, it's only two miles away from Leeds train station, Elland Road, uh, and there's trains going from Kings Cross very easily, and buses go from the station, or you can walk to 
Elland Road from the station. And also, if you, I guess if you're abroad, Leeds-Bradford Airport is only 12 miles away, so that uh, makes it very easy for access as well. Uh, brilliant. Thanks very much. Where can people connect with you online? Yeah, so mostly I'm doing my stuff through Twitter. So I'm, I can be found at, at John underscore McKenzie. That's McKenzie with an A. Um, I also have a website where, which is basically a portfolio website. So if you want to read some of the stuff I've written, particularly about Leeds United, you can find it there. And that's johnmckenzie.com. Uh, and I also do a fair amount of podcasting of my own um, over at a team of John O'Shea's. If you type a team of John O'Shea's in, then all the details for that will, will come up. Brilliant. And we'll link to these both from the website as well. So uh, John McKenzie, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to the Outside Right podcast brought to you by 8Moon Media. For more football travel features, please visit outsideright.co.uk. That's W-R-I-T-E. And engage with us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. If you like what you hear, do please leave us a review on iTunes. And until next time, goodbye.